trusting another person is always a risk. This is because we do not and will not ever know absolutely everything about the other person. There is always the possibility that there is something hidden which makes that trust less secure. A betrayal born of ignorance feels different to that born of contempt because we can't help but blame ourselves a little for not knowing the other person's true nature. Judy is something else, you know. She's that one girl you just can't believe you ended up getting with. She's smart, charismatic, successful, and absolutely gorgeous. She had it all, and then some. I used to get a thrill walking into a party, knowing the entire room was drooling with jealousy. I know a few guys who dated her in the past, and couldn't handle it. They felt like she outshone them. I guess it made them feel small. I didn't mind that she was richer, wittier, more popular and more attractive than I was. It can actually be quite comfortable in the back seat, especially when the driver gives you such a smooth ride. Is this the sort of thing you wanted to hear, Doc? All right, I'll just roll with it then. Things were pretty sweet for the first few years. I had a good job. She had a better job. Our apartment was bouncing. It was the... We had a wine cooler built into the side of the couch. Kind of sweet. I had the love that only comes with that one special kind of girl. And a lifestyle that only comes with a mountain of luck for a guy whose dad worked at 7-Eleven and had a stay-at-home mom. So one Friday evening, we decided to kick back and watch a movie on our obscenely big TV she had bought last Christmas. The movie was pretty lame, so eventually the volume got halved and we cuddled up, started chatting and fooling around. Judy throws out the idea we take a vacation to Florida for the upcoming spring break. I said it was a great idea and we spent the next while flicking through hotel rooms on her smartphone and speculating about which ones were actually as good as the photos suggested. Once we'd narrowed it down to two or three options, we began to feel tired, and we decided to make a proper decision the next day. So we just sort of fell into a sleepy cuddle puddle for a while, half taking in the forgettable movie. Oh, if you told me then, Doc that the girl I held in my arms was who she really was, I'd have either laughed you out of the room or kicked you up the wazoo for dissing my girl. But that night was the start of it. We had fallen into a long quiet, and I was just about to suggest we hit the sack when she pipes up. Robbie? In this sort of wooden voice. Almost timid or fearful. Judy was neither of those two things, so it Got me feeling very awake very suddenly. What is it, babe? You know, after spring break, she sits up and looks me in the eye with her I'm about to say something serious face. Yeah? What if... She hesitated, looking nervous. 
What if we sawed up and moved away? To say this caught me by surprise was a monumental understatement. We were only in that apartment for a few years, and we had emptied tens of thousands of dollars into the decor. We'd gone out of our way to make the place home. In my head, moving away was so far down the list of possibilities that it barely registered. I've been offered a new job in Texas, she told me. When I'd gotten over the shock, she told me that the work location was in a rural part of Texas and that the pay was absolutely insane and for some reason tax-free. The downside was we'd have to relocate to the middle of nowhere. I've always been a city kid and I was used to having everything a guy could ask for being, at worst, a cab ride away. I had no interest in living out in some desert hellhole. I tried to tell her this sensitively and I was like, I get that the money is crazy, but we have more than enough as it is. We're happy here, I told her. Robbie, she said in a final sort of way, I've already accepted. I'm taking the job. Her voice was both sad and determined. The next few weeks were a drag, Doc. It felt like something had broken between us. She'd gone and, by herself, made a decision that gave me the choice of go with her or she'd go without me. It wasn't even that the idea was nuts. It's just that it was obvious that this new job was more important to her than I was. If that wasn't enough, she wouldn't even tell me what the job was about or even exactly where it was we were moving to. She was not budging on that, I swear. She'd always just say sorry and tell me she had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. She literally couldn't tell anyone, even me. I don't know why that hurt as much as it did. It was a legal, not a personal thing, but it felt like there was now a barrier between me and her, and I really felt the gap. All she'd tell me was, it was the same feel as her old job. Some science stuff I could never understand. And that was just a thing with Judy. She was smarter than me. But her hiding stuff from me on purpose just hit different than not being able to follow it. If I didn't get it, that was on me. She was still doing her part being straight with me. The vacation at spring break was probably the most fake thing I've ever been through. Pretending to be happy. Pretending like everything was normal. It felt like being drowned inside my own body. I didn't want to think about the choice I had to make in the coming weeks. But that's all I could think about. So it just turned into me pretending I wasn't thinking about it. Is there more than one type of heartbreak, Doc? Because I felt heartbroken by this. But I still loved her. I loved her so much that I agreed to her insane plan. In retrospect, I should have stood my ground on principle, but she was the most important thing in the world to me. She was, to me, what this new job was to her. The next three months involved getting our stuff loaded onto bizarrely anonymous moving vans. I'd never seen a logistics company make sure their branding was totally invisible. 
Judy insisted she organise all of this, even though I could have got my cousin's moving company to do it for us. Dirt cheap. Throughout the process, this weird guy, who called himself Dusty, kept visiting Judy. I was always given hints by Judy that when the big scarling man showed up, that I should find something to do out of the house. In these moments, I'd usually help the movers load stuff into the trucks. I'd try and chat to them and see if I could work out the name of the company they worked for. They were friendly enough, but they weren't saying a word. In fact, the way they worked was kind of weird too. They were unusually organised and orderly, and they looked like they were trying to look casual. It made me think of the military, the way one guy gave orders and the rest snapped to it. That felt off to me. The day finally came when it was time to leave for our new home. It felt like to me this was going to be my first day in prison. Every step I took, my feet wanted to stay stuck to the floor. When we got down to the sidewalk, I expected a cab to be there waiting to take us to the airport. Instead, there was an anonymous black sedan parked up, and as we came close, the window was rolled down, and Dusty's unsmiling face nodded at Judy. The trunk popped open on its own and we put our bags in. Dusty stepped out and opened the back passenger door for me. I got in. Unusual for him to be so polite. When I sat down, he slammed the door shut. I noticed that there was a solid glass barrier between the front and the back seats. I waited for a bit for Judy to get in. And when she did, it was in the front with Dusty. She glanced back and smiled at me. To my dismay, I noticed that the barrier was soundproof. We set off on a four hour long journey, which left me sat there in the back, silent and alone. At some point I must have fallen asleep, because one minute we were driving down a highway. Then I started smelling something heavy and sweet in the air, and the next thing, the car was stopping between a few blocky square buildings, punctuated with barbed wire fences and soldiers in military fatigues. Before I had a moment to gather myself, Dusty pulled the passenger door open to let me out. I sat there, blinking like an idiot. It's okay, Robbie. We're just getting our flight, Judy said, her voice soft as she walked into view. At her encouragement, I stumbled groggily out of the back seat. Judy hooked me around the arm. Come on, she said, and pulled me along, following Dusty. Two soldiers had taken our bags and came along behind us. My brain was feeling really foggy, and every time I try and ask her where we were and what was happening, she just squeezed my hand and tell me not now. We've got to get on the plane. We did get on a plane, but it wasn't a passenger jet. It was a small and rugged-looking military craft with two engines. The airfield was open enough that I could see the austere watchtowers and radar domes of a military airbase spread out in front of me. Dusty led us straight up the stairs, protruding out of the plane and inside. There I was, sat in a rough sponge seat at the back, this time thankfully, beside Judy. There were no windows in the cabin. After a short while, the engine started up and I felt the forces of takeoff pushing me back into the chair. 
Judy rested her head on my shoulder. However, I felt about as separated from her as if a soundproof barrier were still set up between us. I knew it would be hot in the Texas desert, but that feeling of the cabin door opening and the desert air blasting in felt like I just opened an oven. I was immediately doubtful I could stick living in such a climate. When we got off, it was about 6pm, and there was absolutely nothing around, except for yellow hard-packed ground and hardy desert scrub surrounding the dirt runway. Dusty led us towards a military truck, which was waiting for us, and we hopped inside. I noticed that the windows in the passenger seats had been blacked out, and another divider separated us from the front seats. Security. It's just how it is, Judy would say, when I asked her what it was all about. What were we walking into? I was expected to live out in this place after all. Some sort of transparency would have been nice. After about ten minutes of driving, we had arrived at our destination. Surely they couldn't somehow keep my new home secret from me. I had to live in it. When I got out, I was well and truly stunned by what I saw. Planted in the middle of the endless nowhere was a great rectangle of somewhere. Buildings everywhere, trees, greenery, artificial rivers and canals, streets, pubs, outdoor seating areas, and people. Lots of people. There was a full-blown, vibrant town right in the middle of the desert. We'll get a cab from here, Dusty said, his voice as blank as white chalk. The military vehicle drove away. We walked along a sidewalk, my mouth agape, and Judy seemed away in a world of her own. We reached the entrance to the town. Over the road into the town was an art-shaped sign. It said, in cheerful green cursive, Welcome to New Los Alamos. I've never heard of this place, I said, thinking that such an out-of-place little oasis as this ought to have some level of fame. Nobody has, Judy said to me. She went on to explain that this was a secret government-run project or something. This was a place for you to do stuff you didn't want to end up on the front page of the New York Times. A new Los Alamos was a town they built from the ground up to house the select few who worked on such things, along with their families. When we walked into the town, it was like there was no such thing as the desert. The only word which came to mind was lush. The place was lush. I began to think that perhaps this wasn't such a bad idea after all. For the first three months, I was blinded by the novelty of it all. We were given a small but luxurious house in the residential district, simply known as the neighbourhood, which was soon packed full of our belongings and looked very much like the apartment we left behind. I was given a job at the new Los Alamos bank, the exact same type of job I did before, except this bank didn't officially exist. Its job was to manage the absurd amount of funding that was pumped into the place by the government and other anonymous donors. The leisure district offered perks which were simply off the charts. You got a monthly stipend simply to buy stuff like alcohol, entirely separate from your salary, which, I might add, 
was three times the size of my previous one. There was a water park, a 3D cinema with seats which moved and vibrated with the films. There were bars, nightclubs, and swanky cafes. There was also an open-air public swimming pool, an enormous gym, and plenty of gorgeous walks along various canals and artificial lakes. It felt like being permanently on vacation. The retail district was full of top-of-the-line fashion brands, luxury grocery outlets, and any store you can think of. There was even a Taco Bell, which I was grateful for. Judy would spend a good chunk of her free time there shopping for shoes or whatever. She was now earning a salary so large, I lost track of how much she was worth. It just became abstract after a while, but it seemed to translate into a million pairs of shoes. Now, there was a catch. This glamorous living town was just a glittering cover for the fact that most people living here had no idea what the place was actually for. The vast majority of the population were the families of those working in the so-called works district, which was strictly off limits to everyone else. The people who worked there had the nickname In The Nose, and those who didn't were called In The Darks. Judy wasn't in the know, and every morning at 8.35am sharp, a minibus would stop at the end of our street, and all of the In The Nose would get on and disappear off to the works district only to be dropped off again at the same place at 5.25pm. I learned very quickly, you didn't ask an in-the-know what they did at work. In fact, if you made a habit of trying to get in some questions while at the bar or out at dinner with some neighbours, very soon you'd be seeing suited personnel, I guess from the works district, parked across the street from you or following you at a distance when out for your evening jog. If you really got too nosy, they might even randomly pull you aside and gruffly question you about what you were doing and where you were going multiple times a day. A group of In the Darks I got to know from the bowling club told me that people who got too curious moved away without explanation. All of a sudden they got a job in another city or their relationships broke down and they had to make a quick exit. They would then ominously note that nobody ever actually saw them leave, and those previously connected with them would refrain from ever bringing up the subject of their departed loved one. That was the thing with the bright light of New Los Alamos, the shadow of secrecy. It could be a literal paradise if you were willing just not to rock that one boat. However, that made it all the harder. If life was perfect but for one thing, you noticed that one imperfection even more strongly until it was all you could see. Ten months in, Doc, I think it was starting to do something to my head. I started checking all around the house for bugs. I started to feel almost like they could hear the curiosity in my head and were watching me closely until I slipped up. There was something about having everything. Love, luxury, health, but not knowing why I had it. It started to claw at the back of my skull. I didn't trust the place. I didn't trust Judy anymore. Just what was so worth hiding that they needed to bribe people like me to not take an interest? How could I love a woman 
or a life whose real purpose was hidden from me. Life at New Los Alamos really was a lie. One Friday evening, 18 months into life in NLA, Judy and I were curled up on the couch watching a pretty boring movie on our oversized TV. We were pretty tired, so we were just vibing, not really paying much attention to anything. That was until she sat herself up beside me and gave me that look I hadn't seen in over a year. This time, it sent a shiver up my spine. Robbie? she asked. Yeah? There's a special thing for work tomorrow. I was asked if I wanted to bring a guest, and you're my number two. At San Garino's again, I asked, feeling relieved. It was just another social gathering with my wife's colleagues. They were an okay bunch, for in the nose. We had a few dinners with them in the past. What? No, she said, shaking her head. I mean, at work. I felt like she'd slapped me around the face. Nobody, I mean nobody, who was an in-the-dark, ever came within a mile of the works district. She may as well have suggested we go to the moon. My total disbelief must have shown on my face because she said, I know it's unusual, but they insisted. There was something about the way she said this which made me feel like my paranoia about being spied on was true. Why did they want me? Was I about to move away suddenly? What was clear was, I had no choice. If an in the know told you to do something when it came to their work, an in the dark did it. And they didn't ask questions. Even if that in the know was the love of your life. The next day, the minibus which usually brought Judy to work parked right outside our house. And we both got on. I hadn't slept the previous night worrying about what was about to happen, so I slammed myself down on the back seat and put my head up against the window. The minibus moved off. Was I seeing the last of this house too, like I'd seen the last of our old apartment? As we approached the works district, Judy gave me an apologetic smile before she pulled the blinds down on all the minibus windows. I'd grown used to this type of thing, Doc. As in in the dark, he became used to the darkness. Judy distracted me with talk about what to have for dinner later and how good I looked in the new suit I had bought last weekend. However, nothing was keeping the anxiety out of my head. Eventually I felt the minibus come to a halt and the driver opened up the doors. Judy confidently got up and exited the vehicle while I timidly followed along behind her. We'd exited into a type of indoor garage where Dusty stood waiting for us. He greeted us in his emotionless military way and handed me a pair of glasses, or what looked like glasses. He gave me a look which said, don't ask, just do. So I put them on my face. The eyewear blocked the view all around my peripheral vision, only allowing vision straight ahead, and even that would fade into blurriness a few feet in front. Judy took my hand and that made me feel a little safer. Dusty jerked his head in a come-hither way and we followed him. From what I could see, the corridor was a hostile pea-soup green with lots of military-looking signs which I couldn't read because of the glasses. I was dimly aware of people around me, but I just kept my eyes hooked on the blurry brick that was Dusty and relying heavily on Judy to make sure I didn't collide with anything 
as she gave me a verbal heads up when we were approaching a turn. We then entered through a series of doors, one locked behind us and one opened in front of us. I think there was four or five in total, but it was such a disorienting process, I might have judged the whole thing wrong. But when we came out at our destination, I could make out something that was conspicuously absent from the rest of the place. Bright colours. You can take your obscuring goggles off now, Mr. Sanders, Dusty growled. I enthusiastically obliged. They were making me feel nauseous. The scene which unfolded was jarring, to say the least. We were stood in what looked like a little boy's bedroom. There were pictures of Disney characters on the wall, toys strewn about the floor. A TV showing a popular cartoon was playing. I was expecting to be shown some sick torture chamber or government monstrosity. I was so not ready for a little kid's bedroom. Babe, I called to Judy, probably sounding like I was half dead on morphine. This is where I work, Judy said, rubbing my trembling arm tenderly. This is why we moved here. Damn good work, and damn important work too, Dusty cut in. Judy blushed at the compliment. It didn't take an in the know to realise that Dusty was not the type of guy who'd give out praise lightly. So, so, so what? I stuttered out. Judy gave me a pitying look and said, It's best that they just showed me. I'll leave you two alone, Dusty said, and left out the door we came in. Judy went and sat down on a Thomas the Tank Engine-themed couch, facing the bed and gestured for me to join her. I did. Sitting stiffer than plyboard and waiting for Satan himself to suddenly rise up out of the ground. You can come out now, Judy called in a cheerful and playful voice. I jumped when I heard a rustling coming from the other side of the room. A blue closet was being pushed open, but it was getting stuck on some toys. But with a good shove, it opened. Finally, said a high-pitched voice. It was hot in there. Skipping out in front of us was a little boy. The kid looked about five or six years old. He was wearing cow-themed pyjamas and had a cheeky smile, with a few baby teeth missing. He ran right up to Judy and gave her a hug. How are you doing, champ? Judy asked. Bored, he moaned. And I missed you. You missed me? Oh, that's so sweet of you, she replied in the talking-to-a-child voice. Then Judy seemed to remember I was there. Robbie, this is Mickey. Mickey, this is Robbie. That was when the child turned to me, and I noticed something not quite right about him. He had very smooth, very round features. His eyes were rounded almost like he was Asian, but his skin was near paper white. I also noticed he was lanky and had very long fingers and toes. It was noticeable, but it didn't look bad exactly. Like he was well put together for him. The unsettling thing was that his irises were almost entirely black, and I got the feeling that the whites of his eyes were smaller than they should be. He did have rather cool-looking straight, chocolate-brown hair which fell over his eyes. We just stared at each other for a while, my mouth slipping open in bafflement. He's funny, Mickey laughed, then dropped onto the ground and started playing with one of his toys. You'll be coming to see me now too? He asked between making pew-pew noises while playing with a toy spaceship. Will I? 
I responded dumbly and looked at Judy for support. She giggled. Yes, of course he will, sweetheart. Yay, he said, and proceeded to show me some of his toys. I just sat there and played along for a while, having absolutely no idea what else to do. So by the end of it, I was acquainted with his Lego set, selection of stuffed toys, and his obviously beloved tablet computer, full up with games for him to play. Then Judy got up and pulled me after her. She told Mickey not to worry. The grown-ups just had to go and talk in another room. We exited the bedroom and met Dusty, who brought us into a series of offices and then into an observation room. One wall was full of screens showing video feeds from different angles of the child's bedroom. The other side was a weird set of metal drawers. Judy and Dusty looked at me, seemingly waiting for my reaction. What's wrong with that kid? I blurted out, just letting loose the predominant thought in my head. Nothing, Mr. Sanders, Dusty said crisply, walking towards the back wall. He just had unusual parents. Dusty then smashed his hand on a button on the wall, and two of the drawers slid out, revealing a see-through casing. Internal lights flashed on, illuminating the drawer's contents. There were two dead bodies. The one on the left was a young woman who had a large open wound on her stomach, and the other was half a body. It was only the upper part of a torso and a head, and what there was seemed shriveled. It had a bald, elongated head, grey crinkled skin, and enormous, empty, almond-shaped eye socket. It's an E.T., I blurted out, well and truly flummoxed, and starting to question whether I was having some sort of mental breakdown. I thought I'd have been sent to the shrink for that instead of this, Doc. Oh, Robbie, Judy said, rolling her eyes. No, Mr. Sanders, Dusty explained. This specimen is very much from planet Earth, albeit from a long time ago. The US military has had for a long time good reason to believe a private organization has been attempting to create artificial human beings that they can use as entirely obedient and intelligent slaves. Judy helped me into a nearby chair as I responded to what I was hearing with a pitiful bleating noise. We had no proof of this, however, until we successfully recovered this specimen on a special operation six years ago in Russia. We believe that this sick cult excavated the body from a volcanic region in Ethiopia. They then attempted to extract its DNA and infuse it with a human embryo. He gestured at the body of the woman. We suspect they implanted the embryo inside this woman. The pregnancy was carried to term, and when her agents breached the facility, she was already dead. We retrieved the two corpses, and one living infant. He just had his sixth birthday, last Tuesday, Judy piped up. Oh well, we don't know for sure what day he was born, but that's our best guess. McKee is an invaluable asset to our country, Mr. Sanders. This is why we need you, Dusty said. I nearly fell off my chair. Me? The hell you need me for? I'm not a scientist or whatever. No, Robbie, Judy said, putting her hand on my knee and looking at me. Her eyes were shimmering with intensity. We don't need another scientist. We need something else 
that we think you'd be the best at. What? I blubbered at her. She kissed me on the cheek and grabbed my hand tightly. A father, 